to episode 17 of the Analytics FC podcast with myself, Tom Warville, uh, joined today by um, Sam Gregory, as usual, and uh, in a couple of minutes' time, we'll also be joined by Damien Camoli. But beforehand, we thought we'd just run through a couple of things about sort of Analytics FC becoming a consultancy now um, and whether the podcast will change, things like that. So, uh, Sam, do you want to give a bit of a rundown about the consultancy? Yeah, so as you've probably heard by now, we've turned Analytics FC into a consultancy on top of the podcast and with a blog as well. And so it's myself, Tom, Bobby, and Ben, who've been on the podcast a couple times. And this idea sort of to start this consultancy came up entirely independent of the podcast. And they share a name now, and a, this, they're hosted on the same website. But I think other than that, it's not going to have any effect on it. We want to keep the podcast separate from the consultancy we want to keep the podcast sort of the same it's always been hopefully have interesting guests on have interesting conversations not avoid any topics or try and try and change it in any way really i think we want to keep it as similar as we can to what it was before absolutely i think that you know one of the main reasons we started this podcast was because there was a gap in the market for something that was done like this on a you know repeated basis and something that was a bit more uh, wide-ranging and speak to people in the industry and those who want to get in the industry, things like that. So that sort of objective hasn't really changed. Um, it's more the fact that on the side now we're looking to work with teams ourselves. So, um, you know, there's not really a conflict of interest there. We're now just sort of part of that conversation that we've been speaking about for the previous 16 episodes, I guess. And, I mean, obviously we're talking about this today, but I think in general we're going to try and not talk about our own work and our own whatever we're doing every single episode. I can understand how that would get annoying. And we don't want to turn this into like an advertisement for the consultancy. So I think in general, we're going to try and keep these two things as separate as possible. And also, I mean, we had some interesting timing with announcing the consultancy and having Damien Camoli on this week. And these were entirely unrelated. I think a lot of people have asked, though, is this related? And in general, I don't really want to answer these questions, but I think it's important this week just even for Damien to just make it clear that these are completely unrelated. The opportunities came up through different avenues and we've been working on them for a while, both of them. And it just happened. We got to announce them both in the same week. So just thought I'd put that out there this week. So Damien, do you want to introduce yourself quickly and uh, give us a bit of an overview of your roles at say uh, Arsenal, Tottenham and uh, Liverpool? Um, should I, do you want me to go back to the uh, very, very start or just the last three clubs? Uh, let's do the very start. It'd be cool to know how you got into football to start with. Okay. Um, well, I, I got into football quite simply by um, playing um, when I, I was at Monaco in the youth ranks. Um, I was not very good, uh, but I knew it. Um, and then at the same time, when I was at Monaco, I started to get my uh, coaching badges because really my passion was more about coaching than playing, uh, probably because I knew I would not make it as a player. So I focused my mind on staying in the game desperately because I was so passionate about, about it. And the best way to stay in the game was to become a, a coach of some sort. So I started to get my coaching badges and then at quite a young age, I've been asked by the club uh, to take the uh, under-16s uh, uh, at Monaco. Uh, and I stayed there for three or four years. And uh, after that, I moved to Japan, where I was an under-18 coach uh, in Nagasaki. 
And then after Japan, I joined Arsenal uh, and rejoined Arsene Wenger. Rejoined because uh, when I was uh, the youth player and the coach, youth coach at Monaco, he was the manager. Uh, so I stayed at Arsenal as European scout uh, for seven years. Um, and then I went to Saint-Étienne as a sporting director in 2004, uh, left in 2005, joined Spurs as a director of sporting director for three and a bit plus years, uh, and then left Spurs, went back to Saint-Étienne for about two years. Um, and after that, I left, was uh, headed or was approached by Liverpool. Uh, to be the director of football there, uh, and then I left in 2012. Um, so that's about it. And at the moment, I'm uh, doing a lot of different things, uh, doing um, some consultancy work for uh, Premier League and Championship clubs um, on different aspects. So, you know, it can be strategy, recruitment, helping recruiting staff members or managers uh, and obviously in recruitment of players and, and that role has expanded as well or that business has expanded as well uh, quite significantly in the last three or four months um, where I do more and more in Italy, Spain, Russia, Turkey, uh, where I advise clubs. Um, I do, you know, that's mainly... I've, I'm, I've just I've joined also joined a couple of, of tech companies that work in football uh, to advise them as well, um, and I do a bit of media work, um, speak at conferences, um, so that's about it. So a lot of your roles have been titled director of football or sporting director at various clubs. It's sort of an ambiguous title. So in your opinion, what what exactly is a director of football, and what should their role be at a club? <sighs> That that's difficult to tell you because every club does differently. Uh, I know clubs even in the Premier League where, where uh, whatever you want to call him, you know, to call it the director of football or sporting director. In some clubs, that individual is just in charge of recruitment, and sometimes the academy uh, are all the clubs. To, to, you know, there is a full scope of the job. Uh, I've done. I've had both experiences. So when I I joined Saint-Étienne in 2004. I was very young. I think I was 32. Uh, from far the youngest, I think, in, in Europe at the time I was, uh, but definitely in France. And to be honest with you, I was not ready to to have the full scope of the job. So I was dealing with recruitment, with transfers, and contract negotiation alongside the, the CEO. Um, I was dealing with the, the, the head coach and, and his coaching staff on the day-to-day. Uh, and then I was involved a lot with the academy, but, you know, all this sports science side, uh, medical staff, uh, stuff like this, uh, I was not involved that much just because it required management skills that I didn't have at the time. You know, I had no experience in that position. And then when I moved on to the other three jobs, uh, which is Spurs, Saint-Étienne and Liverpool, then uh, that was, you know, it was a different scope and, and really it was full responsibility. It's basically everything you can think of except picking the team and making the training. Uh, so that involved uh, recruitment, first team and academy, um, transfers, contract negotiations, advising the board on 
call to hire as a manager, um, sports science, medical, analytics, uh, player liaison officer. Uh, so all those people were, I was involved in all those departments and all the, the head of departments were reporting to me. Um, and this got interesting. The, the, when I joined Centetien the second time around, they said, can you show us your job description that you have at Spurs because we want to uh, to do the same, which is what I did. And then it was a little bit of the same at Liverpool. Um, so, you know, it really it depends on the club. It depends on what the uh, the board or the owner of the club want to do, how much that individual is, is involved in the day-to-day. Um, it's difficult for me to say one system, you know, one club just better than the other or what it actually should be. Um, because really it depends on how individuals want to work together. You just mentioned about, you know, six or seven different roles there that you were uh, taking part in at St. Etienne and, and the other different clubs. Um, do you think that's the reason why we're seeing less of these director of football roles predominantly in the Premier League recently is because of the sort of mammoth amount of tasks you have to undertake? Or do you think there's more of a, another reason for that? I think we see more and more in the Premier League, uh, personally. Uh, you know, there, there are there are jobs. Um, there, there, there was never one at Sunderland. There is one. There was not one at Aston Villa. There is one. Uh, that, I'm just running top of my head. The, the latest one, obviously, there's Southampton, Man City, Chelsea. Uh, I think there are more and more. And there are more and more in the Championship. There are more and more in the lower leagues as well. Um, and I think it's the right thing to do. Now, um, have we got a lot on our plates when we are in the jobs? Yes, we have. But, you know, it's not different to being um, a, a kind of chief executive of, 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 a, of, of a business, except that in, in that area, responsibilities are split because, uh, you know, you've got a head coach or a manager that you work alongside of uh, who, who does who takes a lot of, of, that, of, of the pressure, first of all, from the media and the fans, and then who has got this huge responsibility of, of picking the team and, and managing the player day to day. So I think the, the, the responsibilities are quite well, and well spread. Um, it is a big role, but, you know, in, 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 I think in any business, when there, is a, there are a lot of responsibilities, it, it will be a big role. Did I think it was overwhelming? No, I never thought so. Uh, I, I was in a situation when I had to deal with more uh, more than less of, for instance, at St. Etienne and at Spurs. I was really involved in everything which was related to training camp, pre-season, uh, organizing friendly games. And thankfully at Liverpool, that there, you know, there were people who were dealing with that. And I've got to, to admit, I've got to tell you, and be honest with you that it was quite a relief for me not to having to, to deal with all that. But all the rest, you know, I was quite comfortable with the job. One thing that seems to be happening more and more is the idea that, which feeds into what you're saying about not having to organize friendlies or things like that, is the idea that we want to spread the jobs that are required at a club across different people. Do you think that that is something that's going to happen across the board? Or do you think there's still going to be holdouts? I mean, we saw... Recently, when Liverpool um, let go of Brendan Rodgers, there was sort of a big backlash to his backroom staff and to the people from Fenway Sports Group for getting too involved. But do you think that's just sort of the way football is going, that we're going to have more specific directors of football and more different roles dealing with different sort of roles at a club? I think it will really depend on the size of the club. I think 
people will have got to report to somebody at some point. So, you know, whether there is a structure, there is a manager and a chief exec, and now people report, um, like recruitment people or academy people or, or, or sports science will report to the chief exec or report to the manager. It differs from club to club. Um, and really, when, when, if you are in a, in a big club, you know, in, in that type of job, in a big club, uh, I've got to say that there is so much at stake from a commercial point of view, just talking to coming back on the, uh, on, on pre-season friendlies and, and tools. And there is so much at stake financially for the club and commercially that it's better if the people who are dealing with that are actually people that know what they are doing from a commercial standpoint. And obviously that not, that's not my area. And I was more than pleased to let the, uh, commercial director and his team dealing with that at Liverpool. Uh, so going forward, the bigger the clubs will become and the more global they will become. And, and yes, I agree with you. There will be people who are specialized in different areas, but I still think there needs to be a structure. And I still think that the fo- football operations of the football club have got to be dealt with by either the manager or the head coach and the director of football and ideally we both together. And you mentioned a couple of things about sort of organising academy games and things like that, uh, that once you sort of relinquish control of, it was you know, less of your, on your plate, I guess. Is there any sort of specific thing about the role that you are either doing now or were doing previously that you enjoy the most? I think I enjoyed, I, I enjoyed every aspect of it, uh, really. Um, you know, because I'm passionate about youth development, uh, it's definitely something I've always been, always wanted to be involved in. Um, and I'm also obviously I'm passionate about recruitment, um, and, and there are also other aspects of the of the job that you know if you are not passionate about it, you still you still have to do it because you know you know it's crucial for the job. For so, for instance, the whole aspect of of player player liaison and and, and players welfare welfare, which is everything off the pitch, uh, that absolutely is so crucial. That the more it go, it went between Liverpool, Spurs, and and Saint Etienne, and the more I got involved in it, because you know, whereas maybe ten years ago we were looking at the player uh, as football clubs. I mean, we were looking at the player and forgetting a, a little bit the human being behind the player. Nowadays, I think the the good the top clubs or the good clubs, not not in particular the, the top clubs, but the good clubs, whether they are big or small. Uh, are looking. I've got a more holistic approach, and are looking at the the player, the human being behind the player, his family, his background. You know how we deal with stuff off the pitch, etc., etc. So it's also an area that if maybe if you had asked me the question about ten years ago, I would all say you know I'm not that keen uh, and not that interested. I, I prefer to go to see an under twelve game on a Wednesday afternoon. But then you, the more you get into the job and the more you realize how important it is and also the more you realize that in today's world the, aspect, the whole aspect of, of making sure the player is in the best possible shape mentally off the pitch and, and his family is key just because the amount of pressure and, and, uh, and, and demands that the players are under when they are not on the pitch have increased dramatically over the next five years, over the last five years. You mentioned sort of character traits and more intangibles there and looking for players. And I know it was a big trend in baseball that once they had more and more data on players, 
it became less a job for scouts to find out if a player is good or not and more to sort of understand the person and figure out, is this a person who we want at our club, who's going to be at our club for a long time and will help us? So what sort of traits do you look for in players or do you think we should be looking for in players that don't necessarily come out on the pitch? Well, first of all, I think one of the trends I see at the moment in football and especially in the Premier League or I should say in England that people are focusing on data massively, a little bit like it was the case in the US, uh, maybe you know, 10, 10 to 5 years ago. And there, there is a lot of IQ, uh, but people tend to forget EQ. And I think this, this, this emotional intelligence aspect in recruitment is crucial. Uh, and, and just looking at numbers is not enough. Um, and, and I know teams in, in the U.S. in baseball who went away from a purely analytical uh, point of view or approach where the scouts were just there to make sure the player had two legs and, and, and two, two arms to where they, they take a more, uh, an, a more human approach, I will say, where they, they look at, into emotional intelligence a lot more and player character a lot more. Um, and that worries me a little bit when I see some, what some clubs do in, in, in the UK where really it's purely, you know, purely data-based and they forget about, about all, all, the, all the character aspects behind it. So, so, so that's from a more global aspect, from a general aspect, from a, from a more specific aspect and coming back to your question, uh, I think think the, the character, if you have different filters when you rec- in, in the recruitment process of the player, the first filter has got to be the character and the personality. So, you know, there is a culture at the club I work for that the player we are targeting lives, is, is in a different culture and different environment. He's obviously doing well into this environment. The first question is, well, can he transfer from that one culture, from one environment to ours, and can it be successful in ours, and can he repeat what he did on the pitch at this other club in our club? That's the first thing. The second thing is, if we think he does, has he got the character and the personality to come into our culture and 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 to come in our and, and accept our values? So that will be the first filter, the character filter. And then I was talking with somebody earlier this week, and and and, and uh, you know works in the B club in Europe, and we were exactly the same, the same thing. And it's coming back to your one of your previous question. I think there is so much demands now on on players on and off the pitch. On the pitch, there is so much in, information to process. In and it's, the game has gone. Uh, it's going. The game is so quick. And the, the the speed of the of the game has improved so much in the last five years that not only they need to process more information, but they need to process on information a lot quicker than before. So the intelligence on the pitch is key. The intelligence and behavior of the pitch is key as well, because of social media, because of demands from the fans, from the sponsors. Um, from the press in general, and and the players now at the top level, they need to be able to handle that. Otherwise, they're going to get into a lot of trouble, a lot of issues, 
and that will affect what they do on the pitch. And then two other aspects that are linked with, with intelligence. You know, I was at the Arsenal Spurs game on Sunday, last Sunday, and looking at that game, being detached from it, you know, emotionally, I was thinking um, the demands from a concentration point of view and focus point of view in that type of game where there is so much intensity, so much commitment, testosterone on the pitch are so huge that in order not to make mistakes, the players need to be able to focus for 95 minutes at the highest level and at the same time control their emotions because those games are won or lost by a mistake or two mistakes. The first team or the fair player, first player who makes the mistakes, then the game is lost. So this ability to concentrate over 95 minutes and at the same time to control their emotions is also key, a recruitment uh, and a recruitment factor for me. Uh, and it can only go, it can only be go, become more and more important in the future. In terms of like uh, looking for certain characteristics of a player, like we've been talking about, is that through you know? Do you measure that, or is that through just talking to the player and say the agent and just seeing the sort of person they, there is? You know, is it sort of can you objectify that sort of thing, or is it more just sort of you know the gut feeling you have when you're speaking with them? Well, it's both. Uh, ideally, it's both because more and more the clubs are are, are doing psychological testing. Uh, and measuring psychological aspect with players who are in the club. Uh, usually, you know, it, it can be quite difficult and, and, and can, can become confrontation when you try to do with some senior players. But it's quite easy to do with young players. Obviously, when those young players or younger players move into the first team, then you know exactly what the psychological profile of the player is. And that helps massively both to manage, deal the player, try to improve him, but also early on understand what its limitations could be from a mental point of view when he gets to the top level. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect is with senior players. You know, if I'm at Liverpool and I want to buy a player from a big club in the continent or a big club in, in England, then there is no way that that player and his agent will accept uh, for him to take a psychological test. So it's more, it's a lot more subjective, but there are signs that you know, as a scouting staff, we 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 try to measure, uh, we try to identify, and you know, kind of patterns of of the on the of the personality of the player that we try to observe in in a lot of different circumstances and conditions, um, and going forward, you know. Uh, the clubs, clubs are more and more approached by companies who are looking at behaviour and have created software or, or, or tools or statistical tools that help clubs identify behaviour by looking at uh, videos of games uh, and trying to capture what the player does and, and making it a lot more objective. And I think... You know, that's obviously very early days, very, very early days, but it's definitely something that is going to be uh, common in football clubs within the next five years. So moving on to the analytics side of the game and how we can use data to sort of help make these decisions, one thing that we've talked about recently a lot is decision-making and making good decisions when you're on the ball and sort of how we can quantify that. Do you think that there's been improvements at clubs to try and objectively look at this, look at these decision-making uh, sort of skills in a player and game intelligence skills in a player using data? Uh, 
Well, that's the holy grail, isn't it? Um, I mean, if you, I, I've been doing, I was extremely privileged to do some work with, with Prozone uh, and, and using tracking data and some very, very clever people, very bright people. Uh, they, they, they've, they've been going quite deep into looking at game players' intelligence and game intelligence, and we see some very, very interesting things. Uh, I think there are probably three or four clubs in the Premier League currently who are looking at tracking data and, 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 and try to understand what that data means and how to, to understand what, why players make decisions the decision they make when they make them, uh, try to to also understand what the players see and you know what his vision is, and then and then as a, as a consequence of that, what these decisions will be. So the use of tracking data, which is obviously very private and not in the public domain, will help clubs more and more understand the decision making on the players, whether they are on the ball or off the ball. So I think we are only at the beginning of that, uh, but I think in two or three years, you know, it's, it's going to be quite common, and we're going to see some very, very interesting thing, which also will affect recruitment uh, of players. Now, something that we've spoken about previously on the podcast with analytics is sort of, you know, how can you, uh, you know, if you meet certain air, uh, certain metrics, you know, can you win a game? Uh, stuff like, you know. Uh, if you make more passes, does that mean you win more games? Something like that. Um, do you think that this sort of approach to using analytics and meeting criteria to winning matches is either effective or, or useful uh, at the you know highest level of the game? Um, if your question is, you know, should the te- should teams go into the game saying if we make that if we meet that criteria that we we are going to win the game, and if if the strategy is is established, established just on trying to meet those criteria, I think is I'm I'm not sure it's the right way to approach it. Uh, you know, I, I've heard I've heard there are a few teams that do that. Uh, you know, for so for instance, some some clubs who play against Arsenal know that if they make X number of passes when they play against Arsenal, they've got good good chance to win the game, or at least not to lose it, because if they make six and uh, I can't remember if it's four hundred plus plus or six hundred plus passes, obviously Arsenal will see less of the ball, and then the, that team will have more chance to win it. Um, having a system a systemic approach in that direction, I, I I don't know. I'm not sure about it. What I do know is that to answer your question is is yes, there are certain criteria that you know if you hit them, you've got a good chance to win the game. Have you got to be obsessed about it? I don't know because sometimes I've seen you know when Chelsea got to the Champions League final in 2012, they in the semi-final against Barcelona, Barcelona had 25 shots in, on target in each game, and yet they lost. And, and Chelsea went on to, to to play in the final and win the Champions League. And if you go back, there is well, people will tell you there is absolutely no chance that a, take, a team that takes fifty shots in two games can lose those two games and get eliminated. When they did, you know, when I started to look at data about ten years ago, or even more than that, I was obsessed by possession until the day I understood that there is no correlation between possession and winning the game. So then the next thing I look at was 
okay, if we win more, if we win more challenges than the other team, we should win the game, surely. But then I realized there was no correlation between winning more challenges and winning the game. And suddenly, you know, by narrowing things down, you understand that there are certain criteria who are more important, you know, and, and mainly the number of shots on target, accuracy. And now what we see more and more, which is a very strong correlation between uh, one set of, of data and winning is the fact that, you know, we, people tend to speak about interception from a defensive point of view, where interception or a player that intercepts a lot of balls or a team that intercepts a lot of balls doesn't mean you're going to win the game. However, intercepting a lot of assists or potential assists, which are key passes made by the opponents in your own final third, that has got a strong, very strong correlation with the fact that you, your team might win the game. So it's about finding the right set of data, the right approach, the right criteria. Has it got to be an obsession? The beauty in foot of football is that you never know what can happen in the game. Uh, and, and yes, you are a lot more likely to win the game if you have more shots on target than the other team. But if you look last week, you know, Newcastle, I think they had one shot on target and they won the game. And, and, and uh, Bournemouth had 25 shots and 16 corners to nil, and they lost the game. So it's, it's so difficult to define uh, that I think we have to be careful of, of that. And again, a, a very rigid approach saying we've got to hit these targets, otherwise we cannot win the game. I think that's quite a dangerous game to play. You mentioned some interesting things about defending there, and that's been one of the big sort of question marks in analytics, or at least in public analytics, is how do we quantify defending and how do we measure who's a good defender and who isn't? Do you think, where do you think the future is in quantifying defenders and what sort of things do you think we should be looking at? I think the future is in the tracking data. Uh, and once teams or companies like Prozone will have broke into that and will have sorted that out and understand the full aspect of what the players do from a, <coughs> from a defensive standpoint, understand um, and understand the, the players' decision making. Why do they make that decision in that particular time? Then I think would be a massive step forward. And then I think we will be able to say, you know, we now understand what players do from a defensive point of view, and we understand what's important. A lot of clubs are are focusing on interception, as I told you before. Now, I think the interception is, is, is too big of the world or is, or is not precise enough. I think we need to break down interception into, as I said, where are the interceptions made and, 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 they are, and the players that are intercepting what pass. If they are intercepting a key pass, I think what we're going to find out in the future is that the best defenders are the ones who intercept the highest number of key passes made by the opposition. Challenges, I don't think, as I said before, you know, I've seen, I've seen fantastic defenders not winning many challenges because, because they could read the situations before, because they were extremely intelligent, because they were tactically aware, so they didn't have to get into challenges. Um, block shots, definitely not for the same reasons. Tackles, definitely not for the same reasons. So we need... We need to identify what's important. Um, and honestly, I don't think we'll get to the bottom of that without having a large, uh, without having a very 
good and precise understanding of, of, of the tracking data and what it tells us from a defensive standpoint. Now, similarly, in the same vein, we've had difficulty evaluating keepers and looking at who's a goal, goalkeeper, who isn't. Do you have any thoughts on that and where that is sort of headed in the future? Yeah, I, I read some literature on that and people saying, you know, we, is, data on goalkeepers is not, is not reliable and one performance of goalkeeper one season, you know, it can be different from the next season. To be honest with you, I, I've seen that in the public domain, not in clubs. To be honest with you... Um, I never had a problem dealing with goalkeepers, and and more than that, I think they are the easiest ones to ascend, assess. Because when I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with Billy Bean and the A's, um, and I kept, when I was at Spurs, uh, that was probably two thousand five or early two thousand and six. <clears throat> and when they showed me the AVM tool that they were using and they still use at the moment, which Billy talks in the book um, in Moneyball. Uh, then I came back to, to London and I thought, what's the best or what's the most similar situation than the batter and the pitcher that we have in football? And I said, it's someone who takes a shot on goal and the goalkeeper. The shooter, the, the, the player who takes the shot being a, 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 a pitcher in a way and the goalkeeper being a, bat, a batter. So I thought, if they measure that quite easily in baseball, we should be able to measure that quite easily in football. And it's what we did. And we came up with some with some with a tool that we were very comfortable with. And that same tool allowed Spurs to recruit, you know, Hugo Loris a few years ago. And our prediction when we looked at Hugo Loris in two thousand and eight is that when he was twenty one, if he was to come with us to yeah, two Spurs at the time. I think we we scored we had fifty four points at the end of two thousand and 7-2008, and our prediction was to say with the same defenders, with exactly the same shots that we faced last season, if Hugo was in goal for us, we would be scoring 17 points more or 18 points more. And then when he joined Spurs in his first season, Spurs scored the highest number of points they've ever had in the Premier League. Now, if people are telling me there is no correlation between the two, I will say, well... You know, I'm ready to discuss that every every day of the week. So I don't think the goalkeepers... And, you know, again, when you speak to clubs, the clubs are quite comfortable with analysing goalkeepers. I know there is a lot of debate going on uh, more, you know, in, on, on websites and stuff like this where, where people who are looking at stats are saying it's not reliable. I never found it not reliable. I find it quite easy, to be honest with you. I'm not the only one. So a lot of the public work that's done with goalkeepers, and, and it sort of comes back to the same conclusion that season on season, if you look at two seasons of data, the repeatability of those goalkeeping, goalkeeping performances uh, you know, isn't the same. Is that something that, so you're saying that you don't agree with that? or that's No, something? I don't. And that's, I don't, no, because you have to put things into context as well. So you know, How did the team did that, that do that season? How, what did the defenders did? Uh, how the defenders perform, how that team performed defensively, etc., etc. And in our model, certainly the one we use at Spurs, we never saw anything that would made us uncomfortable and and thought, you know, where where are all the changes coming from? Um, so uh, honestly, I, I just I just I, I don't see it. Uh, this thing about the repeatability of the goalkeeper, the goalkeeper's uh, performance. 
it's never something that I felt was an issue. There might be some slight differences from, from one year to the other, but I think it's about context. I honestly do. Is that because you, you sort of hold the quality of, obviously this is getting into the model, so I <laughs> don't feel obliged to answer, but is this because you sort of hold the quality of shots equal, whereas other sort of uh, no. experiments of no? No, no, of course, you've got to, no, that's the whole point, isn't it? You've got to you've you've got to take in consideration the difficulty of the shot. Okay. Otherwise, otherwise it's pointless. That's interesting. Listen, it's a debate that is still going on. I, I, again, I never felt I haven't recruited a goalkeeper for a while, to be honest with you, um, because we never need, needed one at, at Liverpool. Uh, so maybe I need to go back to the and, and look at data again and the models and what's going, what's being done at the moment. But I remember. I think two or three, not such a long time ago, I spoke to, to a couple of people who work with clubs and I've got goalkeepers model and they never felt, you know, they, they never felt uncomfortable about that. So maybe we agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> now, moving more towards sort of the broader sphere of public analytics, I'm just curious if you're reading it, if people at clubs read what's going on on websites and in public, and if you have any thoughts on where it is compared to what's going on inside of clubs. Uh, I'm reading a little bit when I've got time, uh, and I'm not reading all of it. Uh, it's something like, for instance, I've seen some, we just talked about on goalkeepers, that I thought, you know, that I wanted to understand what we people were talking about because I thought there were some differences. Um, so I read it when I've got time. I read it when I find some stuff interesting. Yes, there are people in clubs. Uh, yeah, you know, if there, there are people in in the big clubs who are in charge of kind of research and development in clubs, and they will be looking at what's being said and what's being done in the public domain. Now, the big difference maker is obviously when clubs have got access to tracking data and they are working on tracking data. That data is not is not in the public domain, and I don't think it will be anytime soon. Uh, so that's, that's a huge difference maker, uh, and then and then also you're talking about resources. Um, you know, some clubs have got up to twenty analysts, or, or, or yeah, up to twenty analysts, so they can do a lot. Uh, they've got also got access to uh, data from training, uh, data from fitness data from training, fitness data from games. Uh, that are a lot more precise than the data. The little bit of the data, which the fitness data, which is out there and, and published uh, in the public domain. So obviously, the you know the clubs who are really into analytics will be will be more advanced. Uh, and then and then the other thing is it's it's tailor made to clubs. It's tailor made to the decision makers. So obviously, there are areas where. Um, you know the the clubs are be able to dig uh, a lot more and to be uh, precise a lot more in certain areas where in the public domain people just write a piece which is already very interesting sometimes uh, but it's more you know it, it's not in it's not saying right we I, I want to write back or a striker and I'm going to watch that, that particular type of striker. Uh, and spend days and days and months working only on that because but because that's the purpose of it. Moving forward to sort of transfers, um, something that 
really interests myself and, and probably as well, Sam, is how we sort of evaluate transfers. Um, because obviously there are a couple of ways you can sort of say, you know, Aguero was a good transfer because he's scoring lots of goals for City. Um, you have other transfers that you can say are a success because the player's been sold on for a, a greater fee and has generated profit for the club. Um, do you have any sort of other schools of thought around how you evaluate whether a transfer has been successful or, or not? Are you talking about... Um... Are you talking about evaluate the, the player's value or evaluate the player once he's in the club and uh, his performances? Once he's in the club and the sort of performances. Um, Probably the first one as well. Well, the first one, I've got to be honest with you, every time somebody comes up to me and talks to me about player evaluation, I, I just walk away or I should say I run away because I always say the same thing. The player's value is whatever a buying club is decide to, is, 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 has decided to pay. Yeah, market value, I guess. The, it, exactly. Uh, so that's why it makes me it makes me smile in a in, in sense when I see you know people trying to say, "Oh, that player is worth five point two, and this worth is this one is worth five point five, and this one is worth six point one." And I'm thinking, no, they're not. <laughs> they are worth whatever a club is ready to pay for them. So I kind of. I've kind of moved away from all those models who are telling you how much you should pay from a player just because the market dictates what's happening. You've got evaluation as a buying club or as a selling club. You put evaluation and evaluation on the player based on your needs, your transfer budget, the age of the player, the contract length of the player, which nobody talks about, but that's huge. It's probably the first factor on deciding what, how much a player is worth is the length of his contract. And usually that's not in the public domain. Uh, you know, so there are a lot of injury rates. I mean, yeah, inj- yeah, injury rates, percentage of availability for the player to play. There are so many things that come into it. And again, and again, it's however, you know, whatever the, the, the buying club is ready to pay. So that's the first thing. The second thing, once the player is involved, uh, we constantly evaluate the players. We constantly review the player performance. We look at data. We look at his his personality as well, how he adapts into the club. And then, and then for me, there are different type of transfers. You've got you've got transfers where the player is on par with what you expected. I'm not talking about price, but with on par with what you expected. You have the transfers where the players are absolutely. Um, uh, ex- uh, uh, how, what's the word? They have they have reached a level that you never expected, so they go beyond your expectations. Uh, and then you've got the players who are under par, but you can live with it. And then you've got the players who are really not performing. So those four categories, uh, you know, we review we we review them constantly, and we review them from a subjective point of view. But we also review them from an objective point of view. So coming back to what, what we were saying earlier, when you, I was talking about emotional intelligence, there are situations where you know, a manager and a football club will, knows that, that play, a particular player is not delivering or not playing at the performance he should be playing and maybe he's 5% under what another player will bring. But from an emotional intelligent point of view, he's a very important player. And then, obviously, there is a tipping point where his performance dips so much 
that even if he's an important player from a mental point of view for the squad or for the team, then you, you, you cannot play him anymore. But as far as you, the player hasn't reached that tipping point, then you're happy to, to stick with him. So from the outside world, people might say, oh, you know, he doesn't deliver, look at his data, he's the weak link, blah, blah, blah. Yes, but, you know, I'm the manager of the club, I'm the director of football of the club, I'm here day to day. I know the dynamic of the changing room. I do. I know the EQ of that individual. I know my, what my team needs. And unless I find somebody who is really, really, really better than him, then I'd rather stick with him. And then it's a question of, you know, it's almost a question of percentage. If you find somebody who is 5% better than this individual, but then you lose all the EQ aspect, you might say, I don't do anything, or even 10%. If you find somebody who is 30% better, then you might say, yeah, that, now it's time to make a change. So there are a lot of different aspects that come into it. Uh, but the review, I was telling somebody recently, you know, and people like you were asking me, you know, about the job of director of football and being a man and, and, and compared to being a manager. And I, and I was saying, you know, for me, if I watch, if I'm a director of football of a club and I watch 38 league games during a season, the 38 league games are 38 reviews of my players, of the, the players of the club. And watching a game, I constantly have in mind, should we keep that player? Should we try to improve the position? Can we improve the position because I know the market? Or I should know the market. Um, is he overpaid? Is he underpaid? Should we extend his contract? So it's a constant, constant review after every game where you keep asking yourself the question. One, you don't want any of the players of the team to go beyond the tipping point I was talking about and then and then performance start to decline. You need to anticipate that and data helps that with that a great deal. And and secondly, not only avoiding the avoiding the decline, but but the question is constantly how can we improve? And and the only way you're gonna achieve that is by doing being having this in mind of of being every game being a review of the players. Now, one thing that people talk about a lot with transfers is injuries and injury potential. And I'm wondering, with more and more physical data, could that be one of the next frontiers in analytics is looking at injury prevention and maybe, look, I don't know how it would sort of manifest, but looking at how we can use numbers and data to cut down on the number of injuries a club has throughout a season? Yeah, I mean, quite a few clubs, a lot of, well, quite a few clubs are, have, have been looking at that. We, we looked at that in extensive, extensively at Liverpool. When when I was there, we had the head of performance. Uh, his name was uh, Darren Burgess, who is now back in in OC in rules uh, down in Australia. Was absolutely outstanding at his job, and uh, we created a model that kind of helped us prevent uh, soft tissue injuries. And within the space of twelve months, I think we reduced the amount by forty percent of soft tissue injuries. Uh, it was not a perfect model, but uh, he had the merit to be there and to exist and to help us. Um, uh, so the, a lot of clubs are looking to that. I agree with you. It's, it's, it's already a recruitment factor, uh, a recruitment criteria. It's going to become more and more important in the future because it'd be easier and easier to guess what the players, you know, to guess which players and what type of players are likely to break down. Um, and and then from a what I call from a, a management 
and in turn at a squad management perspective, so the players who are currently in the club, because because the the players train on a daily basis with with uh, with G- GPS devices, uh, there are more and more stuff that clubs can do. You know, in terms of um, analyzing acceleration, deceleration, asymmetry between left leg, right leg. Uh, I mean, there, there is a lot, a lot, a lot that we'd be able to do. I've got to say, I think the big breakthrough will put, in terms of every injury prevention will probably come with the players that are currently in the club because, because that's where we've got the biggest set of data on. Uh, and then slowly it's going to be implemented with recruits. Um, but definitely it's got this one for the future because you see the cost of the players' transfers and wages uh, increasing dramatically. Uh, you know, there is nothing worse than having to, to, having to pay a player who is injured. So it's definitely something that where, where the, the clubs, I mean, they're already, already looking at it a lot, uh, but I think it's, it's going to be huge in the future. I agree with you. And I guess a, a last question for us would be, um, you know, if the opportunity arose in the future to, uh, you know, come back to a, England as a director of football at a club, would you would you take that over the consultancy work now? Yeah, I will do. Uh, obviously, yes. Um, you know, English football is, I love English football. I'm in love with English football. Um, so that would be my, my priority. Uh, but I will only do it in a project. I'm, I'm not talking about the size of the club. Uh, at all, or, or even from you know, about talking about division, uh, whether it's Premier League or Championship, doesn't matter. Providing one that the club has got potential for development, and secondly, that uh, I'm comfortable with the people that are going to employ me. That will be the two uh, criteria for me to choose to go back into a club club management or not. Um, you know, I will be. Obviously, working at the top level is great. It's fantastic, even. Um, but but working in a project like uh, Southampton and Swansea have done, or, or, or Crystal Palace to a certain extent over the next three, the last three or five, three or four years, I think it's fantastic. They they started from scratch, got promoted, implemented a culture and values that they are comfortable with. They are sticking with those as well going forward. And they are being successful. You know, there are different levels of success in football. And for me, there are three clubs who are very, very, very successful in the Premier League at the moment. There are those three. So working in a project like that, I would definitely buy into it. Providing, you know, the people I work with believe in that project and that we can have continuity. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. If you don't have anything else you want to talk about or mention before we head out. No, I think that's uh, fine. Thanks for your question. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's been a very interesting show, so we appreciate you taking the time. Sure, thank you. (laughs) 